So I think it is fair to say that, yeah, Trump uh, had sort of built a rhetorical platform for sedition and then at that moment on January 6th said, okay, go, you know, vindicate my argument that the election has been stolen. And that leads to the uh, assault on the Capitol directly. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, a year has passed since pro-Trump protesters attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. On that day, we were recording an episode of Lawyer to Lawyer called Defining Sedition Under the Trump Presidency with guest Carlton Larson. From my introduction that day, I said, today, Wednesday, January 6th, 2021, as Congress meets to certify the presidential election results, a number of Republican members from the House and Senate are challenging the Electoral College results in four states. And now pro-Trump protesters have stormed the U.S. Capitol and the building is currently on lockdown as lawmakers were in the process of certifying Electoral College votes in favor of President-elect Biden. Who knew a year later what will have resulted from that dark day in 2020-21? What progress have we made, if any? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, as we record this on January 6th, 2022, a year later, we will reflect on the January 6th, 2021 Capitol insurrection. We'll take a look at the investigation by the January 6th committee, the impact of the insurrection, the people involved, and where we go from here. And to do that, we're joined by Gregory P. McGarrion, the Thomas and Carol Green Professor of Law at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. Greg teaches and writes about U.S. constitutional law with emphasis on the freedom of expression. His first book, Managed Speech, The Roberts Court's First Amendment, was published in 2017 by Oxford University Press. His work also examines church and state firearms regulation and regulations of the political process. No wonder Greg's on the show today. Well, welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. While there is an awful lot to unpack here, January 6th, 2020, uh, let's, I'm going to call it an insurrection. What do you call it? I, I think that's a perfectly apt term. That's what it was. Well, you're a First Amendment specialist. Is, is, and kind of one of the obvious questions that has to be asked here about the election is, is there a First Amendment right to lie? That's a very complicated question, as it turns out. The short answer is, yes, the Supreme Court has generally held that the government can't ban lying just as an abstract matter. Now, there are certain kinds of lies that can be and are criminalized. Fraud is the most obvious example of that. So as sort of a basic through line, if a lie has a material consequence that uh, deprives someone or defrauds someone of something, then the First Amendment doesn't prohibit the government from restricting it. But we have a long history, everybody knows this, in in even more ordinary political times of, of people on various sides of political issues, stretching the truth, making misrepresentations. And generally speaking, First Amendment law has tried to create space for that. Uh, but the problem we're facing now of sort of 
mass disinformation and misinformation on a on a, a worldwide technologically adrenalized scale is is clearly a new kind of problem. And and the First Amendment stretches to political expression, and the the quintessential example is that you have you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater. Yes, absolutely. And and how is it then that Trump can stand up and say you've got to fight like hell with the Capitol not far away and everybody there for that purpose, and that not be yelling fire in a somewhat crowded theater? It's a great question. And so I'm going to give you just a little bit of inside baseball stuff here from First Amendment law. This is one of the cornerstone problems of free speech law and a word that people have probably heard a lot describing or arguably describing what Trump did last January 6th is incitement. So axiomatically, the First Amendment protects advocacy even of illegal conduct. It would be good if people did this unlawful thing. But the First Amendment does not protect incitement, actually uh, causing or inspiring people to do the unlawful thing. Because we care about free speech— the legal doctrine of incitement, the doctrine that allows punishment of incitement, notwithstanding the First Amendment, is a narrow doctrine. And that's where that sort of fire in a crowded movie theater meme always comes into play. That's a fairly unusual thing. People aren't often going around yelling fire in a crowded movie theater, or as I sometimes like to say, yelling movie in a crowded fire station. So the question, a question, one of the legal questions coming out of January 6th was, did Trump's exhortations rise to the level of incitement? And it's almost like, you know, the the needle, the hole in the needle that you have to drive the camel through to find something that's true incitement. But there's a really good argument that what Trump did on January 6th satisfies that definition. I mean, it's just as you were saying, he's got an amped up crowd, proximate in space to the Capitol, you know, go over there, march over there and do this. He didn't literally say, go kill people, go do violent things. And that's the argument, that's the best argument that what Trump did wasn't incitement. But the idea that he did exhort people to begin the conduct that predictably or inevitably led to the violence that's also a very strong argument, in my view, a compelling argument. And then let's look at what he incited. Did he incite sedition? So this is where it gets even more complicated. With incitement, the focus is always on the immediate, proximate-in-time exhortation. So Trump yells at the angry crowd. The thing that really seems to have undergirded the seditious aspect of this has a lot to do more with what was being said in the days leading up, what Trump and his supporters were saying in the days leading up to the insurrection. The uh, the election was stolen. There was massive voter fraud. All of these you know, misinformation statements uh, that Trump was peddling and his advocates were peddling about what happened in the election. So... To get to the seditious aspect of what was going on, you obviously need to understand some of the context. But that context was present. That context was already in place on January 6th when Trump addressed the crowd. Clearly, the basis, the whole 
subject of, of the, of the speech and of the rally and of everything that was happening that day had to do with certification of the election results and what was going on over at the Capitol. So I think it is fair to say that, yeah, Trump uh, had sort of built a rhetorical platform for sedition. And then at that moment on January 6th said, okay, go, you know, vindicate my argument that the election has been stolen. And that leads to the uh, assault on the Capitol directly. Right. And it wasn't just Trump. It was a long line. I mean, John Eastman, who has been on this show as a guest, was one of the people that is had put out the memo about how to go about doing this was at the top levels encouraging Trump to do this. What role does Eastman have in this whole thing? And what what's the consequences are going to flow from his involvement? Something I have to confess here is that there is some relevant law here, I think, that I don't fully know. And part of the problem with all of this, of course, is nobody ever anticipated any of this stuff. And to some extent, even the background law uh, doesn't give us a full basis for working through all of this. It's not like there's, you know, a, a section in the legal treatise on my shelf about what happens when the president's henchmen try to rig uh, or or undermine uh, a national election. Yeah, I mean, but, Watergate maybe, and maybe back to John Adams and, and the constitutional foundings. That's exactly the kind of thinking, yeah, like we've got some lessons from experience, but through our history, I mean, one of the things that makes January 6th so important is that this is distinctive. I don't think it's entirely isolated. I don't think it's entirely detached from other things that have been happening in our politics and our political discourse, but we certainly haven't had a situation exactly like this. Yeah, Watergate is a a, a close parallel, but even there, the unlawful activity, while it was focused on the election, was you know, leading up to the election. I mean, one of the many ironies of Watergate, of course, is that Nixon ends up winning that 72 election in an unprecedented landslide. And the idea that he and his stooges engaged in all manner of criminal conduct to try to ensure his reelection seems laughable in retrospect, but that's what was going on. All right. So uh, talking about Eastman, Eastman didn't incite. Like that much is clear. Eastman wasn't there sort of prodding the crowd uh, directly. Giuliani, some of the others who spoke, uh, maybe so. But Eastman and others in the White House and others of, of, of Trump's supporters were involved in this broader contextual process of building a false case against the legitimacy of the election. Legally, and this is where we get back to my kind of caveat, I, I don't know exactly what you do with that. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing that should, I think we usually deal with it normatively, you know? We usually have a public discourse that says, my God, John Eastman was out there arguing that there are legitimate ways to essentially overturn the democratic will of the people, and that guy should never have a public platform again. You know, nobody, no, no reasonable, respectable person should ever take seriously a word that John Eastman says for the rest of his life. I think that's how we deal with those sorts of really boundary-pushing behaviors, matters of political wrongdoing. Social ostracism, we, we yeah. ban him from society, we kick him out. Yeah, essentially. I mean, taking the swing of this back to First Amendment law for a minute, because that's what I tend to do, First Amendment law leaves a lot of bad, socially harmful speech protected from direct governmental punishment or restriction. I mean, that's just a reality of what our legal commitment to free speech does. That doesn't mean, and that has never meant, that we're just 
sanguine as a society, as a political community about socially destructive, harmful speech. Oh, you know, socially destructive, harmful speech is fine. Nobody says that. What we say is we're not going to deal with it through law, but the implication is we're going to deal with it other ways. We're going to just, you know, we, we, it's the First Amendment protects the expression of, of the most extreme, you know, Nazi ideas, the Nazis in Skokie is the classic example. But Nobody's saying the Nazis in Skokie are a good thing. What we do with the Nazis in Skokie is we say, okay, you guys aren't going to jail for marching through Skokie with a swastika, but we are going to build a consensus, hopefully, as a society, that your ideas are noxious and don't deserve any kind of respectable hearing, and we are going to push you to the social and political and cultural fringes. Should should we be taking the step like Germany did of banning Nazi symbols? Should we ban the the Confederate flag? I mean, that that's over with a long 157 years ago. I think the best argument against taking that step is that it's likely to be counterproductive. So, even if you accept the premise and I'll I'll certainly accept the normative premise that you know, no good can come from public display of the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag is a symbol of evil. Even in the political discourse around that subject that we've had over the past, you know, 10 years especially, where it's been a matter of, okay, should we just decide to take down Confederate flags? Boy, every time you suggest something like that, the sons of the Confederate veterans just rile up their supporters and they're being oppressed and they're being you know, their great heritage is being whatever. And and so if you say, okay, we're going to make this a matter of law, then it just sharpens, it, it gives them a, a different kind of argument to make that, oh, we really are being punished by the government simply for believing something outside the mainstream. And I, I think more people start to sympathize, not with the underlying, you know, Confederate politics, but with the idea that this is undesirable repression of speech. I think the the... So that leaves us in a position of saying, again, okay, we're not going to use coercive law to restrict private display of the Confederate flag. What we're going to do is have the conversation and state loudly and clearly and as many times as we need to state it why the Confederate flag is a symbol of evil. And I think you see this working to some extent. Like I think – we're in this weird situation where like the mainstream of public discourse over the past 10, 20 years has definitely shifted away from the idea that the Confederate flag is somehow respectable or acceptable. But there's also been a hardening of a a, a, a core of people on the other side who are, you know, doubling down on the Confederate flag. And and that's the the scenario that we're having to deal with. Let's talk about another aspect of the First Amendment. You're you're an expert in separation of church and state and the involvement of religion in the United States. I've kind of come up with the theory that there was a, a bit of a blind devotion to President Trump and accepting his statements without any proof of evidence, almost like you see some uh, fundamental religious groups, maybe cult level, but certainly, uh, and I'm not sure you can attach it to Christians or any one group level, but there has been this kind of blind devotion. I'm just following orders. These people showing up is what role has religion played in this whole American terrorism is really all I can call it. You know, it's interesting. The The connection you're making, I think, is very sound. And I think there's even a little bit more of a literal level to this. I've read and I'm sure you have you know, different media reports over 
particularly the, the, the Trump administration years. And the big question a lot of people are asking is, OK, you know, we've got these Christians, fundamentalist Christians, evangelical Christians who are scrupulously moral and, and, and espouse certain forms of moral conduct that Trump personally, you know, violates over and over again. I mean, the comments about women and advocacy of behavior toward women, the fact that Trump himself, you know, can't be taken seriously as any kind of religious person. And so, you know, people are asking these evangelical Christian supporters of Trump, how do you reconcile this? And the answer that I saw, I've seen over and over again, is people making a very sort of calculated judgment. We know this guy is a person of low personal morality, but we need him to accomplish our goals. And so that reasoning kind of conflates the religious uh, views and commitments that, that, that lead these folks that we're talking about to form their policy goals, ending abortion, opposing gay marriage, whatever it might be. So they kind of conflate that religious devotion with a practical, instrumental devotion to Trump as a vehicle for getting what they want. And at that point, you've got a, a, a convergence, and I think a very potent convergence, because they're looking past their own moral precepts and commitments to say, essentially, we're putting our our faith in this guy to get the stuff that we want, to get the policy outcomes that we want, even though he's a bad guy. That's a... a, a a potent, powerful kind of political commitment. It's a huge sacrifice of one set of beliefs for another set of beliefs that almost makes it, I would say, hypocritical. Yeah, I, I, I think very much so. And I'm, I am not of that faith, but I'm comfortable signing on to your uh, uh, prescription of, of hypocrisy, be, largely because you also saw plenty of other religiously conservative evangelical Christians in the Trump years expressing a lot of really principled opposition and anguish about this, saying, okay, th this is, we can't do this for a variety of reasons grounded in religiosity on the reason that the guy Trump himself is, is morally noxious as a human being. Uh, for some people, the idea that, that, okay, I'm a conservative, but some of these policies that this this guy is advocating, family separation being a really vivid one, are just uh, appalling to my faith, to my beliefs. So I think there are plenty of people within that broadly defined religious complement and community who called out that hypocrisy themselves, who said, this is, this is a deal with the devil that, that we absolutely should not be making. Yeah, I think you sell yourself down the river, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about a different aspect of freedom of speech. Let's talk about the role of journalists. It has just come out that Sean Hannity from Fox News, can we call it news since they say it's not? But uh, I think with implied air quotes around news. Right, there we are. <laughs> Fox News, uh, Sean Hannity has been texting the president uh, pretty directly and uh, encouraging particular behavior. Where does... Where does this fall on the spectrum in, in freedom of speech? And then how does it cross into journalistic ethics? Wow, that's a big can of worms. Isn't so it? One, one thing that's come up, uh, I think Hannity's lawyers, the other, so the congressional committee is, is issuing subpoenas to some of these journalists who are communicating with Trump and they're saying, well, that's a violation of the freedom of the press. It isn't. I mean, if you're acting, this is almost a little bit like the Andrew Cuomo 
Chris Cuomo situation. Like, if you are a journalist, but you are acting as essentially an advisor to an office holder, you're not acting in your journalistic capacity when you do that. When Sean Hannity, you know, texts the White House and says, for God's sake, call off your dogs, whatever else we might say about Sean Hannity's journalistic profile, that's not Sean Hannity the journalist. That's Sean Hannity the person and the confidant of of Trump. So the legal argument that somehow he should be and others uh, at Fox News who did similar things should be protected from inquiry by the freedom of the press, I think is a complete smokescreen. I think the journalistic ethics question is a huge one. I mean, again, we're starting from a sort of basic understanding of, of Fox News as a, a an institution that you know, a lot of people have left Fox News for precisely this reason. Respectable journalists sort of leaving in droves saying this isn't news. This is it's you know, advocacy. Yeah, this is enter- it's entertainment at its most benign. And it's, you know, a, a kind of noxious pandering political advocacy in its in its essence. But I, I think for for some of these folks to be privately exhorting the president demonstrating that they know how bad this is, that they know that that mobs running roughshod over the Capitol is is beyond the pale, and then turning around in their in their sort of journalistic capacity to their audiences and and saying, oh, this is a false flag operation or this is being overblown or this is a partisan democratic witch hunt, whatever, is talk about hypocrisy. And that's 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 just appalling. And and it's, you know, the classic Fox playbook of Let's give the people what they want. You know, we report, you decide. Is that their old slogan? Basically, we pander, you eat it up, uh, I think is the reality. It's, 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 it's disgusting. And, and when the stakes are as high as, as they are around the events of January 6th, it's, it's particularly atrocious. Let's talk about the investigation. I mean, Congress has kind of slowly appears to have started its investigation into this. Uh, some things have come out. There have been a lot of pronouncements. We've got Merrick Garland saying that he's going to hold people accountable up to the highest levels. This kind of thing, there's been a lot of discussion where people have said that this is this whole insurrection has shaken democracy to its core and said democracy isn't going to survive because of it. To me, it doesn't seem much different than what happened after the Civil War. Say more about that. I want to, I want to be sure that I know where you're well, going. Well, you have the government saying we're going to hold people accountable. You have the whole situation where... We have Americans fighting Americans like we did in the Civil War. Uh, yeah. It wasn't really a foreign invasion. It's not like 9-11. It's not like uh, Pearl Harbor. It has huge differences. It, it was internal. It's not much different than the Civil War where Northerners were fighting Southerners. And then we're now in that aftermath. It's after 1865. The Civil War is over. We're trying to deal. We, we're sentencing people left and right. Uh, 170 people have been uh arrested 70 have been sentenced so far with uh, to me fairly minor sentences how is democracy going to survive this can we treat this like we did in the civil war and survive that democracy being uh, just fighting one against the other are we going to make it through this that's the ultimate question and as as you're talking one thing that sort of occurs to me is we if we're lucky if if we come out of this uh, with the best possible result, 
then we're talking about the situation at the end of the Civil War. The really scary possibility is that what we saw on January 6th was more like happened, more like what was happening in the lead up to the Civil War, where you have clashes and people, sometimes violence, sometimes just rhetoric, pushing the political envelope and seeing what the response is going to be. And the response basically is, to a substantial extent, okay, uh, a lot of institutions are going to try to appease these people. And the people who are pushing the envelope, the, the insurrectionists to be, see that the response is appeasement and they push further and they push further. I'm going to say something a little bit counterintuitive. If all we were talking about was what happened on January 6th, for a democracy to survive that day and the events of that day is easy. By the standards of, of events throughout human history that have undermined or damaged democracies, what happened on January 6th, you know, not to in any way downplay the injuries and loss of life, especially among the police officers, law enforcement who are trying to hold the ground and, and stop things from getting worse. That's obviously terrible stuff. But the, the actual extent and degree of the violence on January 6th is relatively minor in the cosmic scheme of things. What we may not be able to survive is our, and I think this is going to what you were saying, is, is, is the degree of timidity and apathy and pushback that has characterized a lot of the response. And, you know, Congress is, is trying to do what it can. Law enforcement, I mean, I think there are some good people working hard on this. But, you know, again, this kind of goes back to what we we're saying about Eastman. How can John Eastman walk down the street with his head up after what he did? How can Donald Trump still command the allegiance of the overwhelming majority of, of Republicans in this country after what he did? How can members of Congress who were themselves put at physical risk and saw their, their aides and staff members put at physical risk on that day vote against impeachment? and conviction after impeachment? How can they uh, downplay what was done? This is the scary stuff. I mean, you know, on January 6th, you could sit there you know, a year ago today, you could sit there and say, okay, this is beyond the pale. But as long as we recognize that it's beyond the pale, as long as we respond collectively in a way that acknowledges how serious this is, we'll be fine. But that's not what's happened. There's so much in what you said, just going back to the idea of the end of the Civil War. You know, I said that's maybe the, the best case scenario. That's pretty depressing if that's the best case scenario, because, of course, what happens after the Civil War is that a whole bunch of people are, uh, particularly African-Americans, are, are left out to dry by the government essentially saying, OK, we have to coexist. So we're going to coexist with very bad people doing very bad things and you know, good luck, African-Americans in the South. Hope you enjoyed your moment of political enfranchisement while you have it, while you had it, because you're not getting that back for another hundred years. And obviously, the, the you know, we're talking about an analogy, the political dynamics in this era and situation are different. Although, <laughs> when you look underneath what happened last January 6th, a lot of it has to do with racial resentment. So in some ways, the parallel is even even more uncomfortably spot on them than you'd like to think. Well, Greg, it looks like we've just about reached the end of the program. So I'd like to take the opportunity to invite uh, Professor Gregory McGarrian to give us his final thoughts. But I have a question. And that question is pretty much how you, I, I'm summarizing, I think, what you just said in a, in a very short sentence. 
Are we at the beginning of the insurrection or are we at the end? No one knows for sure. And I especially I think it's hard to say whether what we're going to see is a real uptick in, in widespread political violence. I was I was reading different things this morning and some people sort of saying we're not seeing political violence, partially because of the pandemic. But what we are seeing is just increased radicalization of a lot more people who are willing to endorse and accept what happened on January 6th. I don't know exactly what channel that bad energy flows into from this day forward, but whatever it is, it's not going to be good. I think we can hope that it's 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 not going to be actual violence, that we're not going to see a body count uh, mount as a result of this. But what happens you know, this year when inevitably the the president's party loses seats in the midterms? What happens when a Congress run by Trump acolytes who are arguing with a straight face that our last national election was illegitimate? What happens when those people hold power again? I think we may be at the beginning of a period of deep democratic pathology and authoritarianism. And that's that's the the present danger that maybe scares me more than anything else. Well, Greg, if our listeners want to reach out to you to uh, talk with you about this thought process further, how can they reach you? So I'm at Washington University in St. Louis at the law school. Uh, They can just get on the website and there's a faculty entry for every faculty member. I'm GP McGarrian at WSTL, Washington University in St. Louis, .edu. So they can certainly contact me that way. Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Gregory McGarrian, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and what an interesting discussion. Thank you, Greg. Thank you so much. I'm sorry for the occasion, but I appreciate your having me. Well, earlier this morning, January 6, 2022, a year after the January 6th insurrection, both President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris spoke and compared the insurrection to the historical significance of the attack on Pearl Harbor and the attack on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the down plane in Pennsylvania on September 11th. She's spot on accurate about the insurrection's historical significance, but I see a fine point distinguishing those two historical events from the insurrection. First, Pearl Harbor and September 11th were attacks on the United States by foreigners. The insurrection, on the other hand, was an attack on America, the United States, by so-called Americans. In fact, they're more like terrorists, and they needed to be treated as such. Some people are clamoring for long jail sentences and stripping citizenship from them. As President Biden said, you don't get to be Americans only when you win. Fact is, can you be an American after you lose an insurrection? You may be going to jail. There's so far 70 who have had, 170 have been arrested. And according to Merrick Garland, the trail is going to lead where it's going to lead, perhaps even to President Trump was pretty clear from President Biden's speech this morning that that's who he blames for the insurrection. Well, it historically does compare with the Civil War, and the questions that Professor McGarrian was talking about really is, are we at the beginning of the insurrection or are we at the end? And it all depends on us. Some people claim in democracy that we're, we're in decline, we're about to fall like Rome, and they said the same thing about the United States after the Civil War, but we've lasted 157 years since then. There are very important lessons, as Professor McGarrian pointed out, the racial divide and a lot of other things dividing our country today. We have to remain strong. We've got to remain vigilant to maintain the democracy as a shining beacon to the world. But boy, 
What a stumble. Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Gregory McGarrion, for joining us today. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.